I'm about output, not hours. I just focus on things where I can move the needle versus doing things just because. Don't be short-sighted on here and now sale. I mean, just always make sure you're thinking about that lifetime value, particularly if you're in a category with growth. There's a lot of people say, oh, you got to be first. And I actually disagree. I think in most cases, you want to be second. Welcome to Add to Cart, the podcast that Express delivers all you need to know in the fast-moving world of e-commerce. Every month, Nathan Bush from 12 High and an e-commerce industry expert will share the news, research and insights that you need to know to keep you at the top of your game. And of course, keep your customers adding to cart. Hello and welcome to Add to Cart. My name is Nathan Bush, host of Add to Cart and e-commerce consultant at 12 High. My guest today is Carl Hartman. Now, it's hard to put a label on Carl because of his varied interests and investments. He calls himself a serial entrepreneur, but I think he's a brilliant problem solver. Maybe it's one and the same thing. I first met Carl back in the days of Tomando, which Carl co-founded and was CEO of. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Tomando, it was one of the first, definitely in Australia, one of the first aggregators and intelligence for freight, which helped retailers deliver effectively. There's a few in the market now, but Tomando was the first. You'll hear more about that today, as well as where Carl sees the future for fulfillment in Australia. Now, since the acquisition of Tomando by Neopost back in 2017, Carl has gone on to be the co-founder of Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits, as well as Shortlister, which is an intelligence platform to attract and retain talent. Now, with Liars, Carl is back in the seat of a retailer, and his observations on this side of the fence are fascinating. Lies has won multiple tasting awards and recently raised $16 million in capital to continue their expansion across 11 countries. So enough fluffing about. Thanks to our partners, Shopify Plus and Signet. Grab yourself a stiff drink or maybe a, a non-alcoholic drink and join me on the Liars, Tomando and Shortlist of Story with Carl Hartman. Carl Hartman, welcome to Add to Cart. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Pleasure. Now, Carl, we uh, briefly knew each other through the Tomando days, and we're going to get there. But if I look at what you've been doing since, you're co-founder and director at Liars, you're co-founder and chair at um, Comparo, Compano, adjunct yep. prof- oh, Capano, sorry, Ad- I-, I can't read my own writing, um, adjunct <laughs> professor of entrepreneurship and innovation at UQ, and you're sitting on a bunch of boards. Um, calling yourself a serial entrepreneur, which you no doubt are, what the hell does a typical day look like for you? <laughs> well, if I'm really honest, my, my day actually starts with me checking the weather forecast because uh, I'm quite blessed to live in Noosa and uh, the, the weather really will determine what my, my sporting activity of the day is going to be. So I was, I was just actually thinking I should probably make a flow chart as in, you know, sun is shining, no wind, feel like being dry, cycle, uh, f- feel like being wet, you know, wakeboard or jetboard, winds up, oh, kiteboarding it is and... And uh, I have been known to reshuffle some of my uh, schedule around for a board meeting, which is actually going kite surfing in the afternoon instead because the wind picked up. But um, no, look, um, I think relevant to the story is um, post-Tomando exit. It's one of these interesting things where kind of have this reflection period because to, to an extent when you have a startup, it's your whole identity for a period of time. And, um, you know, I was living um, in Silicon Valley, lived there for four years. Um, It was a great professional experience, but it was one of those things where um, I did think about coming back to Australia. I think once you've spent some time abroad, you do appreciate the... uh, uh, some of the finer things of Australia, which you perhaps took for granted, um, you know, simple things like free healthcare and clean beaches. And uh, yeah, you'll, you'll never complain about Medicare again, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> and it was one of those things where, I mean, the original thought was uh, about the whole Noosa angle was like, I remember coming here as a kid saying, yeah, well, no, I'm just going to live there. It's such a nice place. Um, and also living in San Francisco for years, my peak travel year, I actually did uh, 230 days and I've averaged 150 days of international travel uh, a year for the last 10 years um so pretty much my whole my whole professional career i've just been like a a serial traveler right um and i can explain how that's led to (laughs) more startups (laughs) but um but i remember just when i was living in uh, san francisco i was just you know coming back it was gray it was cold and i'm like all i'm doing is traveling coming back and the, the weather's not great apart from this 
you always get a pretty magic Indian summer, sort of October, which was quite nice. But, you know, majority, majority of the year, it's nice, but not amazing. And I'm like, well, next place I live, I'm going to live somewhere where when I'm at home, it feels like I'm on holiday because I foresee myself traveling a lot um, for the foreseeable future because that's just my pattern of existence. And I remember it was um, – I had kind of founded Compono first because my, my biggest learning from the Tamando arc was really about people because, um, you know, it had grown that to a couple hundred people in size, multiple countries. And you get to this point um, – of your career where it's like, um, you know, the business is capitalized, it's stable, and then the bane of your existing just literally becomes people. It's either hiring the right people, find, like just finding them. When you finally find them, you've got to keep them. And there's definitely some gems um, trying to attract talent in Silicon Valley where you're going up with head-to-head with literally companies that have a limited budget. And I remember interviewing some people and they're asking, what's on the menu for the week? And I'm like, huh? <laughs> And they're like, oh, I only work somewhere where there's a catered lunch. And you're like, holy shit, some people are entitled. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, you reflect on, your, on, I guess, the story thus far. And I remember a couple of times I made some absolutely shocking hires that caused lots of damage to the business. Um, on paper, looked amazing, get them in the business, and mm-hmm. they're just not the right person. And then I had the complete inverse of that where I had some people that literally you read the resume and you probably shouldn't like even interview them. But you get them in, you upskill them, and they become your next superstar. So uh, I remember just talking to other CEOs, just thinking, look, I just wish there was a platform that could tell me who I should hire, who I should fire, who I should train, You know, who's going to be obsolete due to automation. Could be something simple as a chatbot or in you know, a traditional manufacturing business, it could be like robotic automation. Um, but you know, when you do have that situation, how do you upskill someone? And there was no God view to talent. And we did all the right things. We put in a HRS. Uh, like human resource platform. We had an applicant tracking system, but all they solved for was process, not intelligence. So basically teamed up with someone I went to uni with and uh, we cracked on, we built it. And, um, you know, that's uh, growing growing like a weed. COVID's been kind to it in the sense that um, if you're doing any advertising for staff at the moment, um, Mm. you'll probably get somewhere between five and 10 times more candidates and you need to, I guess, have some Without a data-driven way of getting through that, um, you're just literally wasting time because this the, the, most HR people have so much dollar-productive stuff to do with their time. And, uh, and then at the same time, once you've actually brought someone to business, then you've got to keep them there. And people now expect a whole career of learning and upskilling. I mean, take the e-com industry as a great example. It's like just, you know, so it's something like Magento. You, you wrap your head, head around Magento 1 finally. Well, then there's Magento 2 and then there's all the extensions <laughs> and then there's all the add-ons and I've got the whole ecosystem. There's a lifelong learning program that comes with, uh, you know, being employed these days. It's not just, hey, you get a degree and that's it for the next 30 years. Um, so, yeah. So that's um, that was one where I felt passionate to solve that problem because it was the source of frustration. And then I think with Liars, um, it was a similar sort of journey. Um, and um, I, I should mention, I, I did try early retirement in Noosa. That lasted about 12 <laughs> weeks. Uh, and it turns out I need to be busy to be happy. I'm yeah. just not the sort of person that can do. Um, I'm all about work-life balance now. Uh, it's taken a while to get there, but um, I literally just have to keep busy because it just fuels my fire. How many hours a day would you be working now compared to when oh, you were a, like at the peak of busyness? Look, uh, probably probably not dissimilar to tell you the truth. It's but I, yeah. I'm about output, not hours. I just focus on things where I can move the needle versus doing things just because. I mean, that's probably the main difference to being a post exit founder versus like when you're a first time founder, you will every hat and you'll do everything just because it needs to be done. Mm. Post exit, you're like. You, it's almost like this self-reflection. You're like, I'm really good at this. So I'm good at raising capital strategy, um, you know, thinking what up we should be doing next. Uh, you know, make me do a 30-page sort of plan and make sure Johnny Jim Jams has done item 26B. Um, look, there's just people that are way better suited for that um, in terms of both personality and skill set, right? So yeah. just I think just playing to your strengths, right? And um, just make sure every day you get up, um, you deliver value, whether, whatever you're working on. So yeah, back, back to the, the lies thing. It was interesting. Interesting. I, I was doing a lot of business in places like you know, London and um, New York and uh, particularly London. I mean, every meeting after four o'clock, you just get given a beer in the hand. Like um, you, you just all the, all the meetings just migrate to a pub. And whether you ask for a pint or not, there's just one that's given to you. And I remember <laughs> just thinking to myself, like, I just can't drink every day. And then every so often I'd say, I'll just have a water. And then people would give you hard time saying, I thought you're Australian. What's wrong with you? 
<laughs> and originally from Queensland. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. you should be basically a functioning alcoholic by that definition. <laughs> and it's just like if you're constantly traveling, you're always at the front of the plane. Um, to be honest, it was a combination of, uh, you know, you're constantly tired from travel, um, too much you know, just socialization, which comes with lots of meals and booze. And you'd end up, you know, I think putting on the weight, not feeling great. And I remember just thinking to myself, I just wish there was a drink that looked like a real drink, tasted like a real drink. No one actually knew I was having like the low, the no or low alcohol option. And, you know, obviously if you take out ethanol, you got a lot less calories, which is definitely good for the waistline. Um, and at the time, even the, the original non-alcoholic beers on the market were just awful, right? Um, obviously, they, even they've come a long way. And it was one of these serendipitous things where I came back to Oz. Um, I joined the board of a mate of mine's company, um, which is a full stack f- fulfillment business. And um, he was, uh, Mark, he was working on um, these, uh, the liquids that I guess now are liars. And I remember just thinking, I think the original plan was, you know, to sort of spin up like a, a venture studio model and uh, bring these things to market quicker than the big booze companies could. But I think my head was just like, holy bejesus, this this is big. As in, let's not give away the IP, let's have a good crack at this ourselves. And, you know, we incorporated the company, um, did a quick lap around the world. And uh, I think by the end of that first one, it's like distributors in six countries, forward order commitments. And, you know, we knew we we're on to a winner. And uh, yeah, I mean, flash forward a year, uh, it's now the, the world's most... Uh, um, highly awarded a non-alcoholic spirit brand. Um, it's just it's almost just non-contested in terms. Of, I think we're fifty something awards. I think a couple of people have some low single digits, but um, you're not mm. quite the breadth we have. I mean, in fairness, we did launch with thirteen vari- uh, varieties, which um, does help win the medal count when literally every product you have wins an award. Um, I mean, they're <laughs> all. It's like if people go, "What's your favorite?" It's like trying to ask your favorite children and. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Our, our Amaretto the other day won a 98 points in a spirit competition. I mean, um, that's the highest score uh, any non-alcoholic spirit got. And then the last year was controversial. We actually thought we'd be cheeky and enter it in a double blind tasting with against real booze. And we actually won a mm. double gold. Um, oh, wow. And then they had to go look at their um, their rules to say, can they award a double gold in, a, in an alcoholic category? Uh, but there was nothing about minimum percentages. However, this year they've actually calcul- they've created <laughs> dedicated non-out categories because uh, there's a bit of protest on that one, but hey-ho. Some people will try and tell you that turning traditional plastic packaging tape into strong, eco-friendly paper tape is impossible. Well, not for our friends at Signet. In fact, it's a simple and cost-effective way to reduce your plastic usage and create a more sustainable packing offering, and it's available to everyone. Our partners at Signet have been helping leading retailers such as T2, Lush Cosmetics, and Mecca reduce their plastic usage and create a more sustainable supply chain with their range of eco-friendly packaging products. To get started today, visit signet.net.au and find out more. You're a bourbon drinker, aren't you? Like yeah, that's yeah. your that's your drink of choice. How yeah. does the Liars bourbon compare to uh, your bourbon of choice? Look at well, you know, uh, my bourbon of choice is a Pappy Van Winkle, which is designed to be have uh, on the rocks without anything spoiling it, um, even just pure neat because it's so complex. But um, look, if you make an old fashioned um, or any of the mixed drinks with with our spirits, um, they are designed to act and taste and feel exactly like the reference spirit of its category. So ours is a lot in style to a Jack Daniels, makes a great old fashioned. Obviously, it's not designed to be drinking neat, um, and that's simply because when you take out our Ethanol. ethanol has um, obviously a lot, a lot more molecular weight um, and um, it obviously burns as well. Um, so it's it's not it's a different mouthfeel. Um, we've got as close as possible with science and um, look, um, it's won lots of awards. So <laughs> it's, uh, it is very good. And to be honest, um, if you follow our recipes on the website to a T, um, most people find them indistinguishable yep. apart from uh, the obvious uh, burn of alcohol. Um, but we have used different things like um, different chili and pepper compounds um, to try and sort of emulate it um, without it being overbearing. Yeah, it's a fantastic yeah. idea. And I've heard you talk about people using lies as like a wedge drink between alcoholic drinks to, ke- to keep their night in order and keep yeah. them What are the other use cases you're hearing around why people go to lies rather than the the traditional alcohols? Look, I think it's just about giving people options. Um, I mean, the whole thing with Liars is about enabling mindful drinking. Um, we have a bunch of demographic where um, they're not drinking, and that could be for religious reasons. It could be due to current circumstantial reasons, i.e. pregnant, breastfeeding, and so forth. I mean, they're the obvious ones. 
Um, to be honest, I'd say our our biggest demographic is people that are just trying to be healthy. And um, the interesting thing we saw through lockdown was uh, uh, was very much around two types of uh, – you had a simultaneous lockdown almost all around the world, which was unprecedented. And there seemed to be two groups of people, like Group A, which is, uh, you know, very much they just got into the day drinking. They might have been on some type of, uh, you know, wage subsidy scheme, hating on life a little bit. But then there was a, a massive, massive group uh, being like a second group, which was saying, hey, this is a health crisis. Um, I'm going to take the time to sort of, um, you know, just focus on myself. And look, I personally fall into this category. Um, I've gone from traveling, like I think the minimum I've ever done in the last 10 years was 100 days. And I've got routine for the first time in my mm. professional career. So it's literally, I was half joking at the start of this uh, this uh, recording um, saying, hey, check weather. But I literally do that. I'm like, I said, I, I find an, an hour a day just to start the day, particularly in that part when lockdown said, you're only allowed to go outside for grocery shopping and exercise. And uh, if someone does the grocery shopping, you're left with the only reason to leave the, the house legitimately was exercise. So I was like, oh, challenge accepted. And you know, you start running every day and turns out in your 30s, that's not something you should do every day. Uh, <laughs> so then you like start cross training with the bike and turns out that your ITB will get aggravated if you do day on, day off, uh, intertwine cycling and that without stretching. So then you start to put cross training in and before you know it, you're like, oh, maybe I'll just do a triathlon. I've never done one of them before. <laughs> it just compounds, right? Um, but it, it's interesting. There's so much uh, um, data that's come out saying, you know, what I found is actually what half of society basically did where they all got on Strava. They started competing with their yeah. friends. I mean, I'd love to see Strava's user growth over the last six months. I think they would have had a uh, probably the best year ever. And then uh, so many people are so goal-driven. So they're like, okay, well, I might just start training for whether it's a triathlon or people start feeling good about their health. And then I think the macro effect here is you start to become, you make a lot of progress, you start to feel better. So you start to question your relationship with alcohol. Like, do I need to drink every day or do I start to, to um, do wedge drinks? And, you know, in my case, I always love to be social, but, you know, midweek, if you're training early in the morning, you may not want to have um, alcohol and be hungover because then your, your probability of training just decreased a lot. If you are going out, like living on the Sunshine Coast, um, you know, you drive, you drive everywhere, right? So that limits to how much you could consume. But I mean, take for example, we 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 with a, we've got a, an Aperol equivalent, which is called Italian Spritz. You can either um, mix that with. Um, a non-alcoholic Prosecco or a real Prosecco, the real Prosecco brings the ABV down from 22.5% to 4.5%. So based on the content of the drink, you've got something that's not even half a standard drink where the original recipe is 2.2. Um, 2.2, you have one, you can't drive home, right? Mm -hmm. At 0.5, I mean, as a guy, you could literally drink four of them an hour <laughs> and still drive home, you know, and then probably two every subsequent hour. So you can either use that in a wedge drink format and, and sort of prolong, say, a social outing, um, or you might just say, hey, I'll, I'll have the non-out version and, hey, you can drink unlimited of those and stay out as long as you like. So what we found um, has been a really interesting sort of use case that's popped up is, say, restaurants that are doing lunch trade, they're getting people up from buying a sparkling water to maybe two or three cocktails. And it might not sound like much, but that could actually translate to a 30 to 40% revenue increase, which particularly at the moment when their businesses have been so negatively affected through lockdowns mm -hmm. and COVID and um, if we give them a boost, um, I mean, the, the data shows for itself, right? And I guess that's probably what's made liars differentiated. Um, uh, effectively, uh, a lot of the early movers in the space were all uh, craft and new flavors, which you kind of have to be an expert mixologist um, to really recreate the flavors and drinks people know and love. Whereas um, with us, the whole idea was um, just to, to make it as easy for the bartender as reaching for a different model. So, like, they all know how to make the top 50 SKUs off the top of their head, right? So, we're talking mm. espresso martinis and Negronis and so forth. If all they have to do is like, okay, if I'm making a, a, a non-alcoholic Negroni, I use the Liars London Dry, I use the Aperitif Rosso, and I use the Italian Orange, it's one for one. Or they might do low proof and they might use their house gin and outdoor aperitifs and they, again, they bring the uh, alcohol content down to make it a, a more sustainable is probably the right word, drink. <laughs> so I think because the cost to serve and the uh, the speed to serve, which are really important things in the on-trade, um, are basically uh, the same. Um, the adoption rate for our, our product has just been, you know, chalk and cheese compared to pretty yeah. much everything in it. 
And I mean, the measurements, we've gotten so precise. If, it, if the recipe calls for 30 mil, ours will be 30 mil. Um, some of the other alternatives in the category are like 50 or 60. So both the cost to serve gets higher because they're a similar price point to us, if not more expensive if they're craft, but it throws all the recipes out and the bartenders get frustrated. And then I think just to build on this, um, what we saw through lockdown was the home bartender explosion. So everyone's at home, they're somewhat I don't want to say bored. I mean, let's just say people had more time on their hand with with commuting coming back. So they're like, oh, I've, I've never made a cocktail before. So we saw a lot of the early data and we started to, um, all our brand ambassadors who we paid to go to bars and restaurants, we just pivoted them all to um, do free Zoom masterclasses. And I mean, it's probably the best thing we could have done from an econ perspective. So even if you bought a $45 bottle, we would, would give you a free Zoom masterclass. And um you know, we, we found we were educating people about the category um, where they want one bottle. Next thing you know, they're buying a whole case of different variants and they're saying, what else can we make? And and um, we've really invested into our community. And um, I think that's um, we have been fortunate that we were well-resourced and we could do that. But like, if you think of this from an LTV perspective, um, sure, I mean, your first sale might be negative if you add up what the cost is in terms of people's time. But we can see in terms of repurchase and loyalty and uh, we can calculate an ever-growing LTV and we're like, wow, this just explodes the lifetime value of, of the customer. And I think, you know, I mean, that's definitely a lesson I'd love to share to everyone is, um, you know, don't be short-sighted on a here and now sale. I mean, just always make sure you're thinking about that lifetime value, mm. particularly if you're in a category with growth, because if you can become the category captain, um, yeah, like <laughs> um, yeah. this is something which may change their trend forever, right? Because <laughs> that was going to be my next question to you is um, you guys were fairly early on the, the, the no or the low alcohol trend. What was the launch strategy there? Was it to get bars and clubs using lies as their preferred uh, no alcohol spirit or was it to uh, get customers to ask for lies specifically? Uh, well, um, pre or post lockdown, because uh, pre, <laughs> pre. Let's, let's go back to the start. <laughs> so I'd say, um, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, we're, we're actually not the first. Um, there, there um, was obviously some early um, uh, movers in the category, like um, you know, Seed Lip and Cedars, both back from by Diageo and Pernod Ricard, respectively. Um, but I'd say we're the first to do this at serious scale, um, and um, um, it took us a year. Um, obviously, we, we've we've been venture back, which has allowed us do it but um we're now the most uh widely available in terms of number of countries uh, current counts 30 but literally check back every month because we just keep opening more um even in the middle of a pandemic we were fortunate that um we did a lot of travel pre-borders shutting so um we'd already built a lot of these relationships uh, i think we're up, and we've into the last 12 months we're up to uh, 11 e-com countries and uh, we've got a few more to go by the end of the year so um yeah, hopefully this this time next year it'll be uh, about double in both um, uh, sort of distribution count and e-com count, and we have to actually do um, uh, individual domestic sites and domestic in, um, fulfillment because cross border for us is actually quite difficult because um, of regulation. So you've got things like the FDA or the TGA, you've got all these different things when you're in the food category um, that we have to comply. And it could be something as simple as the liquids the, the same, but it needs a different label. Um, in some cases, like the Middle East and China, it requires reformulation. Um, yeah, like we're talking minor little tweaks. Yeah, um, yeah. Given your background in logistics and fulfillment, was there anything that surprised <laughs> you when you got into, into liars? Oh, look, I think um, anyone that's ever had to deal with the FDA and the US, I mean, yeah, that's an experience. <laughs> <laughs> like so you're, class- you're classified as food, not alcohol, obviously. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So basically, yeah. Um, it, uh, uh, if you're over 0.05%, you're re- you're you, you go through all the alcohol control measures. Um, if you're under, you're a, you basically are in the food category. Um, and it's just some of these regulations were written like 80 years ago, right? It's just the way yeah. things are. Uh, like yeah. we're going back to prohibition level um, rules. So anyways, you just got to comply um, with standards yeah. and labels and measures. And, you know, um, in some cases, it's like Canada must be in English and French. Otherwise, it's non-compliant. Um, so anyhow. All right. I thought if there was anyone who would have had it nailed, it would have been you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, um, we were quick to, I guess, spin up lots of 3PLs and um, yeah. the right model. And we, we know the, the right strategy to put in terms of make optimal conversions. I mean, yeah, we get a head start there. There, but um, yeah. yeah, not with not with that. I think it's the first time being on the other side of the fence as a retailer, right? Um, which um, yeah, like it's a, it's a little bit more complicated than a t-shirt, that's for sure. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So I think um, the original strategy was, you know, sign a distributor per country, focus on bars and restaurants, which um, obviously in the sector is called the uh, the on-trade. Then you do sort of off-trade retail and eventually you do B2C to build a longer go ram, um, a, a long relationship with your brand. Um, but obviously then the world changed and we were very fortunate that we had a very robust e-com strategy from day one. And then when uh, we got a bit scary there for a while where you know, our primary revenue stream just kind of got paused. So we had to just pivot and put a lot of energy into e-commerce and we fast-tracked all the launching of our sites. And um, you know we went deep with Amazon, um, one of a handful of brands. Amazon's taking global into all countries through their Launchpad program, which um, you know, we definitely, definitely recommend for... Um, uh, for listeners, and it's in some some sometimes it's just a simple thing like getting set up on the UK with all the know your customer stuff is a pain and it's painful. And um, being able to talk to someone somewhere like Amazon is worth its weight in gold because you've probably just taken a six month onboarding into like a month, right? Yeah. Can you give us a little bit more detail around what that Amazon Launchpad looks like and and how you partnered with Amazon? Yeah. So, Amazon Launchpad's a program that allow. So, obviously, Amazon has more SKUs than I ever knew even existed. And um, um, obviously, to get cut through there, uh, Launchpad's a program to help, uh, I think, highlight some of the new SKUs. So, um, and they do a, they, a lot, lots of different things. It's from having a dedicated like new portal site, which actually gets some pretty high traffic, um, particularly in the US where it's uh, fairly well established. So, people literally just go onto Launchpad and go, I want to look at new stuff, right? Um, it's helping um, create new categories within the search taxonomy. So, your products are found. Um, it's EDMs, it's events, uh, PR, like all sorts of stuff. Gotcha. Um, so, Ultimately, Amazon wants to have more unique SKUs than anyone. Um, that's why probably the program exists. But I guess the, the, the added value for you as a merchant is um, helping get that cut through. And in our case, um, we launched on Amazon before we had our own site ready because our own site took time. And um, Amazon, we just had to uh, deliver some pallets of stock into FBA and let the Amazon machine do the rest, right? Yeah. Was, <laughs> was, that, was that also a testing ground for what markets and what products are really going to shift quickly online or you kind of no, knew that but, um, I think we had a pretty good uh, understanding and, and research. Um, it probably just helps highlight that. And we keep getting surprised actually because, you know, we, we think we understand the market and then all of a sudden people latch on to one particular skew. Uh, like, for example, we, we found out that, uh, you know, a, a top Australian restaurant's using our absinthe in a new cocktail. And, um, you know, absinthe isn't exactly, you know, the, the number one best-selling variant in the world in terms of, of, of the spirits category. It's not your Tuesday night drink, is it? It's not your Tuesday night drink, no. But, um, but a, again, you start to see some of these uh, knock-on effects where you might have, uh, say, a venue of influence. They do something amazing and then people go, what a cool idea, and they can spread like wildfire. Um and um, yeah, even um, some of the Asian markets, um, that skew is really popular where, you know, it's obvious you go into markets like um, uh, the US and our bourbons are, uh, is, a, is a bestseller. We go into the UK, our gin's a bestseller. Um, you know, you've got your obvious sort of cliches. In Australia, it's anything that makes a nice summery, refreshing drink particularly. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah um, you know, rums, um, gin, bourbon, um, all the spritzes sell really well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Australia's a bit of a mixed bag. And of course, we've got the espresso martini which is the most popular cocktail skew in australia would you believe there you go mm. what i love about lies is obviously you the product stands on its own two feet based on all the awards that you won and, and the success that you're having but the branding of it's phenomenal as well like every time you look at a bottle or look at the website it just draws you in there's so much to look at and explore did the marketing come first did the product come first how did that come about? Yeah, so the liquids came first, um, and then it's like, okay, we, we, we've, we've got to come up with a brand. Um, I mean, basically, we, we, we took inspiration from the Australian Lyrebird. So a big part of our brand identity is being as close to the original base spirit or the spirit of origin um, as possible. Mark and I are both Australian, so we're like, okay, we, we need a, a nice Australian connection because Australia, when it comes to um, products, uh, particularly food and beverage, has a really, really uh, good reputation globally. Particularly if you're exporting, if we, I mean, we manufacture here we, and we export to Asia. Um, if it's perceived as a premium Australian product, I mean, that's the promised land, right? Um, so we, we said, all right, well, 
lyrebird. Uh, it's, it's nature's ultimate mimic. So that the lyrebird can hear anything from Mozart to a, to a chainsaw and recreate the sound. And we're like, that's where we're going. I mean, we're with, um, playing on this whole mimicry angle. Mm. So then we thought, well, a lot of the terms, so take gin, for example, that's a protective term. So we can't actually use gin on the bottle because, you know, we're not, we're not a gin, right? Because gin has to be made to a very specific, specific, you know, standard and, um, or bourbon. I mean, um, bourbon, you know, you must, Use X Kentucky mash, <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> so that that's um, that's you need to come from a region, right? Gotcha. So and and so on and so forth. So and we look, we've always played by the books. Um, we do see some uh, emerging businesses, uh, you know, just saying, "Oh, we're a gin alternative." I'm like, "You're going to get sued." Uh, <laughs> the question is just how long will will until someone sort of throws a rock? Um, yep. Because don't forget, you're in a category with hundreds of billion dollar sized uh, spirits companies that um, won't sort of be uh, very uh, forgiving if mm. they feel that there's erosion of their core, um, you know, yep. their core assets, right? So, so we figured, okay, so how do we start to tell the story? Well, we, we got to find this, this, um, uh, the spirit animal as in, so we're playing on the word spirit and the spirit of origin. So, for example, the London Dry, which is our gin, um, it's got a pigeon because obviously pigeon is the most popular creature in London. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, that, it's kind of that, that connection without actually having say, to say the word. It, the, yeah. the, the visuals and the, the imagery, yeah. imagery kind of does the connection for you. It's fantastic. Yeah. And did you guys put that kind of that sequence together yourselves, that thinking, or was it kind of did you give a brief to an ad agency to do yeah so we were quite fortunate that uh i, I guess where liars was incubated came out of um, Brandlink, um and we've got the award-winning kinetic agency as part of that stack um so it was very much done um i mean so Brandlink is a group that basically helps all fmcg customers go to market with everything from logistics to brands to launch strategy so we had that capability in-house and then obviously um liars was i guess birthed out of that stack so um yeah we, we did have an army of people behind us on day one um that helped with that but um yeah i mean the guys at kinetic did a did a brilliant job and i mean they're all part of the liars family <laughs> yeah it's great i mean you yeah. can see all the building blocks coming together to create this beautiful product right so it's a, it's totally. a fantastic story yeah I want to take us back, if, if it's okay with you, to Tomando because a mm. lot of our e-commerce listeners would have either worked with Tomando or even worked with yourself back in Tomando days. So, Tomando started up in 2009, as mm. I understand. Um, give us a bit of insight on how you came up with the Tomando vision um, in the end. It really was the early days of e-commerce then, right? Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, um, you start to think of early days of uh, e-com. There's like myself, Paul Greenberg, a few, a few other of the old uh, of the OGs. Um, but yeah, so look, I came up with that actually when I was in university. Um, the irony is, um, so Marco did lies with. We actually both worked at JB Hi-Fi in our university days, and you start to look at how intertwined fate must be mm-hmm. uh, that all these threads somehow like you know form together over over decades, um, butterfly effect or something like that. But back then, if you think back 20 years ago now, and plasma TVs were all the rage what would happen is people would come into the store and say look how much to get this thing shipped and um, um, what would happen is um, we would go consult with a person in the storeroom they'd have a magic piece of paper on on a wall and it would say 50 bucks or 100 bucks whatever it is and everyone was commissioned back then right so um, basically the way that worked is at the end of every week you had to submit your commission and it worked both positively and negatively so if you made money for the company there effectively at rev share if you didn't um it, it, you had to deduct it from your commission because you sold something under the cell so um long story short with that is uh pretty much every time we try to charge for delivery we got it wrong and i was like wow there must be a better way for this um it was just something that was in the back of my head um and then after after sort of uni i worked in the early days of news corp looked after the retail portfolio saw all these merchants going online and basically what they were doing was um just copying the American strategy, putting free shipping, hoping for the best, and then freaking the hell out when their first order is from like Thursday Island or regional WA and they're just taking a bath. In some cases, it's not just negative margin. It's like the shipping cost is more than the product's even worth, right? Yep. So, I was like, oh, this is a pain. And then um, sort of went from there, it was early days of domain, um, sort of really learned firsthand how to build something to market there, just watching domain sort of be a challenge into realestate.com and execute a really tight product strategy. And I think they've probably innovated far more at a product level than uh, some of the incumbents there and just, you know, just chipped away as a challenger. So sometimes uh, um, there's a lot of people say, oh, you got to be first. And I actually disagree. Um, I think 
in most cases, you want to be second um, because um, I, I can, you mentioned uni before. I give a lecture a couple of times a year at UQ around entrepreneurship. And um, obviously, the average age of students now, um, it, uh, like we probably start to show, show age, but <laughs> I, I, I throw up the example of uh, Alta Vista and I get yeah. this puzzled look. I'm like, has anyone ever heard of this? And they're just like... <laughs> no idea i'm like well this was the first search engine when i had my dial-up internet connection and you try to make a modem sound and they've never heard what a modem sounds like <laughs> and um, you just like hear someone from, can you <laughs> see someone come out, come out and say okay boomer <laughs> <laughs> like not quite a boomer but um but but you know if you i mean you, you probably be old enough to remember alta vista yeah. right it was yeah, sort of like absolutely. russian roulette you, you type something in mm. and you just don't know what you're going to get sometimes it's an adult site sometimes it's something with cats um sometimes yeah. it's actually the thing you're looking for it, it was kind of the fun of the internet and i think that actually spawned the the <laughs> simpler time the uh i'm feeling lucky button on google that existed for a while right um but it, interestingly enough um you know sort of Alta Vista, then there was Yahoo, then there was Google, really. Um, and then everyone thought Google was crazy. It's like, oh, search engines already exist. They just did it so much better because they had, I think, uh, the prior art to draw from and um, I, I guess a way to sort of refine um, you know, the model. And um, I also give the example of, I showed the most popular phone when I was in university, which was the Nokia 8310, you know, the one with the blue screen. Yeah. Because it had, there was the first one that had a blue screen and anyone that was cool had the blue screen. And then you show up the iPhone example and say, you would have never thought in like, you know, 20 years ago when Nokia had like 75% market share that they would be like, uh, everyone just thought they were untouchable, one of the best tech stocks in the world. Then Apple just basically ate everything. All because what started with the iPod that metamorphosized into the iPhone, um, mm. and then ultimately it was so much more than a device. It actually changed the way that we interact with information. Right? I remember pub chat, like in university, you could just make up stories. You can't do that anymore because <laughs> someone will call bullshit or they'll ask Siri or you know they'll basically just get on Wikipedia. I mean, yeah. you, you got you, you've got. I mean, all the world's information is now mm. truly democratized. You can still you can still run for US president though. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, just use the, the fake news. That's if right. It's, uh, exactly. It doesn't fit your narrative. No, that's fake news. Think Shopify Plus is just for simple retailers? Well, let me tell you, JB Hi-Fi is no simple business. But when their old site crashed for two hours during Black Friday, doing nothing was simply not an option. Shopify Plus was selected as their e-commerce partner to help facilitate the fast-growing $5 billion retailer. However, with over 200 dispatch locations, a reliance on a web of APIs, and the ability to handle triple growth, it wasn't an out-of-the-box implementation. But the results spoke for themselves. JB Hi-Fi cruised through a record Black Friday and Cyber Monday in 2019 without a hitch, have reduced average page load time by 15% and were even able to redeploy three techies whose job it was just to watch the servers to make sure it didn't go down. JB Hi-Fi and Shopify Plus, not just smashing prices, but smashing e-commerce. To read more of JB Hi-Fi's story and see other case studies, visit the customer section on shopify.com.au forward slash plus. I also remember too in those early days, one of the biggest things was on the other side is that couriers basically just inherited all this e-commerce volume overnight. When they were orig- like originally, they were just taking parcels from businesses to businesses, right? They weren't set up for e-commerce. Well, I think I think you nail it there, right? Like, um, so in the early Tomando days, it's like we would go speak to the carriers about e-commerce. They didn't care. They're like, it's like not even a percent of the market. Like. No. And then, in fact, the, the, when we first started, we had had to hold the rates with the carriers because that's the only way that we could trade with them because they didn't have APIs or anything. So, in many cases, we had to educate the world's couriers of, okay, e-commerce is a thing. You need to have developer documentation and APIs. And, hey, if you can't do that, we'll, we'll be a partner. We'll do some of the heavy lifting for you. And... um just drove the whole industry forward. Um, so, you know, it's so obviously I, I, I um, the deal we did in 2015, um, that was the beginning of the exit. And then that wrapped up 2017. 
And, you know, and, and like I can say openly, like that definitely would have paved the way for so many people that um, came after, like, you know, in the Australian example, it's the folks like Sendel and Shippet, where sort of mm-hmm. Sendel did the, uh, I guess, Tomando Model 1, which was the whole selling of rates, making it sort of aggregated for SMEs, um, and yep. the sort of double down on the carrier thing. And then um, Shippet obviously did um, this, the second Tomando Model. So um, I think it was one of those things with Neopost buying it. Um, the CEO at the time had a big vision for shipping strategy. Then he retired, a new CEO came in and um, wanted to go back to basics. So, um, mm. Definitely, this is not the only time that this will ever happen within a business. It's, um, I guess the best analogy to give is sometimes if you sell people a Ferrari, uh, doesn't mean they know how to drive it, right? And exactly. can, wrap it, can wrap it around a tree on as they drive off the, the parking lot. Um, and look, big companies change strategic direction whenever they have a change of leadership. And that is just something that happens. And um, I think, I mean, there's lots of eyes on Adobe with Magento right now to see where that where, where that will end up because um, yep. um, you know I, I guess I've been through this, the the industry long enough to watch you know Magento version one then Magento under eBay and then now Magento mm-hmm. under Adobe and you know who knows yeah, where that we, goes. We've still got things like I think eMarthys was recently bought by SAP which totally. SAP don't have a great history but you never know what could happen out of it. Do you remember the day that you went, oh this baby isn't mine anymore? And what were your feelings like around that? Was it joy? Was it sadness? Was it because this is yeah. something you built from scratch? It's a, it's it's a, it's a bittersweet. So I think when you when you do exit, it's like you just kind of hope someone uh, you know leans in the right way to give it its full potential. Um, I think the hard part as an entrepreneur watching from the sidelines, you're just like, oh. I wouldn't have done that or, or I would do this or, um, you know, like you kind of want to almost jump back in. But I think from, from in my case, it, I had a sort of a, a three-month period where I'm like, oh, I'm just going to try doing nothing for a while. And then that concluded with me sort of investing in about a dozen companies and starting to myself. Um, so, yeah, that, 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 that experiment was not successful. Um, but, um, but I think, you know, it's um, – your, your mind starts to like first you get this identity crisis and then it's like mm. okay what is the thing i want to solve next because i kind of was you know part of the reason for exiting i was sort of done with shipping i look kind of learned all i can and yeah. you know you start to get a bit tired doing the same thing and it just so happens it's like all right well i guess helping people finding meaningful work and help is probably mm. the most important thing for uh, for companies to, around talent because that's everything net right now um um, particularly, yep. it's even just been uh, exacerbated with COVID because it's interesting seeing companies that hire well for culture right now are absolutely thriving because the whole company can work remote. Those that haven't and um, have a micromanagement culture or like this office hours, nine to five, I mean, mm. they're just not doing too well. And um, yep. I think all of a sudden, um, new new ways of building teams and managing teams and uh, thinking about talent, uh, I think that the whole, like there's going to be some long lasting macro trends that emerge post COVID. Um, I mean, just as an example, um, the amount of people I've met um, in the last few months, um, just just different senior executives from tech companies, other um, very successful entrepreneurs that are all on the Sunshine Coast now because they're just like, well, I don't have to go to an office every day. The team wants to keep working remote. So there's been heaps of companies that have said, well, you can work remote forever basically because this is working Mm -hmm. because they've done the right thing. So they're like, well, well, I'm going to leave the city and go live in Queensland when the weather is better and I get a lot more house for my dollar. (laughs) Yeah. So And and I I think we we just lost all our Melbourne listeners right then. (laughs) <laughs> oh well look we feel so look i mean uh, in these situations someone always gets the short straw but um i can tell you the i know a lot of melbourne people that have either rented or bought a house uh and said yeah i'm relocating yeah because hey i mean if you're going to be stuck at home do a two-week quarantine and go live in queensland for six months um, um i probably actually caught up with more melbourne friends in queensland in the last six <laughs> yes. months because um, if your circumstances permitted it particularly if you're homeschooling your kids i mean nothing says you have to stay there because no. you know the the borders are still open if, if you're willing to quarantine. It's just you've got to have, I guess, the ability to do that. Yep. But um, but look, um, I mean, my neighbour up here actually normally splits his time between Noosa and Melbourne. Um, he, he hasn't made it up. Obviously, um, you know, riding it out with the family. But um, hmm. um, I, I was surprised he just didn't just do the two week quarantine because yeah, yeah. uh, he would normally spend the winters up here. But there's a lot of people in Melbourne that actually have their holiday house up here, whether they buy or rent. So yep. I, I do think you're going to see some long-lasting demographics um, shifts because it used to be that cities attracted talent because that's where the cluster of employment is. The whole game changes if you can work remote. And it hasn't been just 
you know, um, say the Sunshine Coast, it's been, you know, from some of the empirical real estate data I've seen, it's like north and south coast of um, of Sydney. It's places mm-hmm. like, you know, Ballarat, Mornington Peninsula in Melbourne because obviously Melbourne had a hard lockdown. But, um, you know, I know some folks that were fortunate enough to have beach houses and that's exactly what they just changed their driver's license and said, I no longer live in yeah. Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And people and I, just and went and bought one, if not, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's been long enough now that people go, oh, this isn't a fad, like we've kind of settled in our, into our ways of working and sure there might be a little bit of a rebalance at some point. Do you think also we're going to see businesses relocating out of those major cities to follow their employees? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- there's like uh, nothing that says you have to pay all these massive city-based rents, mm. right? Um, I mean, I, I jokingly said a while ago, it's like um, with Compono, because I mean, we're, we're uh, most of the staff in Brisbane, we've got contingent in Sydney, but I've said, why don't we just all like go to the Sunshine Coast? Because um, normally you've got two flights a day to Sydney, it's all you need, you can do day trips. Um, and then they're all, yeah. I, I jokingly said it the other day and like, oh, could we? I'm like, well, <laughs> we, we've got leases. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but uh, look, I would not be surprised. Mm. And, you know, the interesting thing is because I think the, the thing that I still think is important about offices is like I definitely execute better when I am by myself and no one talks to me because I get through more stuff. But yeah. you can't replace the collaboration that happens by bringing everyone to an office. Um um, so still, I mean, I, I've gone to the office as we've been able to um, through this whole period because I, I like to get on a, a whiteboard and draw and have everyone in mm-hmm. the room. And if you're doing things like, I don't know, strategy or financial modeling or things that require multiple perspectives, I think doing that over Zoom and stuff like that, it's just, it's just too hard. Um, so I personally hard. get drained after 45 minutes. Um, whereas, yeah. you know, give me a whiteboard and some pens and we can be there three hours. Yes. Uh, like if, if, as long as there's coffee. Um, but um, <laughs> And non-alcoholic spirits. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Some, if you're doing financial modeling, you might need some real booze at the end of that. That's right. <laughs> um, we've got to wrap up. But one question that I was really keen to hear from you is that it feels like we're at a bit of a crossroads with shipping at the moment. You know, we've got a lot of people turning to ship from stores. 3PL, we've got Amazon, people owning their own warehouses, a lot of curbside stuff. From an, well, you're not even an outsider anymore. You're a retailer. So, what, what do you, a real retailer. Yeah, what, what <laughs> do you think about the, the big transitions that people need to make around setting up their fulfillment models right now? Look, I'll put my liars hat on here. The biggest challenge at the moment is supply chain disruption. I think the first question you have to ask yourself is where does your product come from? So, uh, case in point right now, there's, um, some, uh, there's been some strikes and stuff in Sydney ports. There's retailers with containers of stock that are just sitting there waiting to be open. And there's this knock on effect for uh, inventory, right? I mean, I think for so long, the world's operated on just in time because you can just fly, like worst case, just mm-hmm. eat a bit of margin, air freight it, two days, happy days, right? That doesn't exist anymore because with uh, restricted borders and flight volume being at 20% of what it was a couple of years ago, air freight is expensive. There's no capacity. It is like mm. um, people are overbidding people because uh, there are things that are more essential, um, you know, things like PPE equipment and you know, foodstuffs and stuff that we need, you know, for the world to keep spinning. So discretionary goods can get bumped unless you're prepared to eat, eat like eat a lot of margin, which may actually be just commercially not viable, right? Um, mm. So consequently, all that volume then flows onto C and then C's that capacity. So you've got to think about like triple redundancy in your supply chain right now. So our original plan was, oh, we'll manufacture everything in Australia and we'll just, you know, we'll air freight it where we need to and we'll see freight, freight where we have the time. And then it's like, just getting enough glass bottles that's a challenge i'm just because yeah. i mean we have we have a problem at the moment we just like no matter how much we make we sell so it's just like we literally just can't keep up with demand with demand which is a good problem to have yeah, i was about to say some people don't call that a problem no but it, it, it's a challenge right because you've got to make sure that you've got ample stock of raw ingredients and bottles and then you've got to have freight capacity and there's all these moving parts yeah. um so like if you don't have someone on that you know, pretty much full-time owning that, it's going to be a challenge. Um, you know, in our case, we're thinking about how do we serialize this and, um, you know, manufacture in multiple um, points, which we're, we're doing now. We're doing um, in both Europe and North America. So we've got three points of presence because then you start to like shorten your, I guess, your overall procurement chain because if everything has to come to one central point and then go out to the rest of the world, well, if you can stockpile, you know, different stuff, if you do have border restrictions or port strikes, like the world keeps spinning. So, 
yeah. you do it's almost like you, you i'd say you have to look at supply chains now like you would your tech infrastructure where you know if data center one goes down data center two is there to catch it's a fantastic analogy. I love it. And I love that that term, the triple redundancies there for, for what you're looking at. I saw that. Yeah, dub- double's not enough anymore. <laughs> no, double's not enough. Well, I saw for the first time Apple have started doing ship from store, which they've never done before. So mm-hmm. even in the US where ship from store hasn't traditionally been a huge focus, even that's starting to come into play as one of the redundancies um, there, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, well, you can understand. I mean, Apple, uh, I actually went to an Apple store the other day. I had to get a, a new, they've got these new single sort of bands. Um, so I, 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 um, I kiteboard and, uh, every so often I have a stack and I lose the Apple watch in the, in the water. And I'm like, oh, lucky the thing's got a heart rate thing that flashes green. You can find it relatively easy, but, um, they've got these new bands that don't fall off when you do high intensity sports. I was like, cool. But yep. to get in, they got, you got your temperature check and then you got to put your mask on and then they've got to sanitize. And there's this whole like check-in procedure to go to the store. I can get why they're doing that. Cause it's like, it's not, I mean, look, they're being responsible and they're yep. complying with policy, but I found it interesting. I did this at the Chermside store. I'm like, all right, I'm in a state with no community transmission, uh, with shut borders. Mm. Like, so literally I'd say, I mean, there's always a risk, but the risk has to be so close to zero, but they're like, yep. Hey, it's just a global sort of carte blanche policy they've done. So interestingly enough, um, um, obviously, if they think of the flip side of that, not everyone's going to want to go through that customer experience. So, if they can ship from store, well, then um, that starts to enable a customer satisfaction level that previously, because their whole store has been set up as destinations. They, they, yes. their, their stores exist to bring people in, yep. but they have to almost become their anti-trend um, with the current sort of circumstances of the world, right? Yeah, absolutely. There is so much more I'd love to talk to you about, but um, we have to wrap up there. Carl, where is the best way that people can learn more? Obviously, we can visit the Liars site, visit Shortlister. Where can they contact you? Uh, probably uh, LinkedIn is always pretty good. <laughs> LinkedIn, nice. All yeah. right. <laughs> good stuff. Um, and I think we've got a special offer from uh, Liars for new for the first time orders. We have 20% off your first order. We'll put all the details in the email and on our social. So thank you very much for that. We're keen keen on trying, trying that. Um, Carl Hartman, thank you very much for joining us on Add to Cart. Thanks for having me. Oh, listening back on that episode, there were so many rabbit holes that I wanted to go down with Carl. 50 minutes just wasn't long enough to cover all the things that I wanted to talk about across shipping, the future of work, and a little topic close to my heart in drinking. But one thing that really resonated with me, from an e-commerce view at least, was Carl's triple redundancy approach to fulfillment. His analogy around web server redundancy for fulfillment was spot on. Now, as COVID's shown us, inventory management and supply chain reliability can be upturned at any time. It's crucial that you don't put all your eggs in one basket. Now, this doesn't mean you have to offer warehouse plus 3PL plus ship from store. That'll get really expensive and really old really quickly. But it is important that you have options. So while you may fulfill primarily from your own warehouse today, what happens if borders close again? What happens if you have a surge of demand? What happens if your biggest fulfillment partner goes out of business? It's so important that you have backup options that are clear and ready to roll out should the need arise. Now, if the lies story really caught your attention, or you just want to justify drinking absinthe on a Tuesday, head over to addtocart.com.au. We have a really special 20% off coupon for you in the show post. If you're looking for more e-commerce news, case studies, and research, sign up to 12 High's High 5 newsletter. Every week, I read all the e-commerce news and send you five things which I've found which will help grow your business. Visit 12high.com.au forward slash high five, H-I-G-H five to sign up for free. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep adding to cart. Cart.